This is The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. For decades, the military has used DNA to help identify soldiers and sailors missing in action. Its identification laboratory, located at Joint Base Pearl Harbor Hickam, has been tapped to assist in the Lahaina disaster recovery effort. Teams have been combing through the town, which many say looks like a war zone. This morning, we talked to Dr. John Byrd, director of DPAA, which stands for Defense POW MIA Accounting Agency. Byrd was trained as a forensic anthropologist and has worked around the world, as well as at the Twin Tower site of the 9-11 terrorist attack on the U.S. DPAA is here in a support role um, to support the, the Maui police and the, and the Maui medical examiner. What we bring to the table is the kind of special expertise that we have developed over many decades for locating and recovering our missing service personnel um, in far-flung parts of the world. And so that means we have uh, a capability to work with uh, human remains that are what most forensic practitioners would call residual, meaning that... uh, there's not a whole lot left, and, and more conventional methods of identification are no longer viable. Things like uh, visual recognition and fingerprints are no longer viable. Uh, that's where our core capabilities come into, into play, because in our casework, on our normal casework that we do, conventional identification methods are never on the table. We're always using uh, alternate means such as uh, advanced DNA testing, uh, stable isotope analysis, dental identifications, anthropological exams, and things like that. And so we are here providing experts to support the medical examiner in the identification efforts. And we have forensic anthropologists We have inbound a forensic radiographic technician to help shoot x-rays of remains. And we have a forensic dentist who starts work today, assisting the medical examiner in these efforts. Out in the field, we have a team made up of forensic anthropologists from DPAA. And we have 12 people who help with that work in the field. And then we have six uh, active duty U.S. Army soldiers who are mortuary affairs specialists. And they are trained in search and recovery on battlefields. And they also train with us at DPAA on the kind of recovery work that we do. And so they come in and work with us in a very seamless way to get the, the recovery work completed out at the scene. And I know that the Department of Human Services sent a rapid response mortuary team out as well earlier this month, uh, you know, with yeah. x-ray machines yeah. and techs. That was the DMORT team, and they're, they are here to, today as their last day, um, and then they will be uh, pulling out, and they've done a tremendous amount of work uh, in support of the Maui Medical Examiner. Um, they've been here since the early days uh, after the fire, um, but their team will pull out, and we will we are plussing up the support to the medical examiner uh, to, you know, fill in any gaps that that may create when the DMORC team pulls out. And how does this work? You know, because we're coming up on a month since the fire happened, they've swept through the scenes uh, looking for remains. There are still like, a, I think, a hundred or more people that are unaccounted for. And so, uh, you know, how likely is it that you will find human remains in the ashes? Yeah, well, the uh, the very earliest work was just done by Maui PD, who were responding to finding remains that were easily observed uh, out in the open. Uh, they may have been on the street or in a car on the street and sometimes easy. And then the second group that came in were their urban search and rescue teams that FEMA brought. And that was a very massive effort with rescue teams that had come in from all across the country. I'm not even sure how many states, but I I would see a different state had a team there almost every day uh, when we were out working with them. And and they had cadaver dogs, uh, and they searched through the entire recovery scene of Lahaina with their cadaver dogs. They had heavy equipment to help facilitate searching, and they did a tremendous job finding everything that could be found that way. And that left then the follow-up recoveries where you got to come in uh, with more refined methods and and make sure you're recovering all of the remains. 
And that's where DPAA and the forensic anthropology teams come into play because we come in with, with our team and we have screens and we excavate you know, through the rubble and we process everything through screens to make sure we're recovering everything very carefully. So you might think of the DPAA group as the fine-tooth comb approach that comes in at the end to uh, ensure that everything that can be found has been found and that what has been found, that, the, that a complete recovery has been accomplished. That's really what we're doing. So we are doing a combination of follow-ups to make sure all of the remains that are there got recovered properly. And then we are uh, going to, with each of the people still missing, we're going to do a fine-tooth comb kind of approach to try to make sure that the remains have not been overlooked in all of the, you know, ash and debris. So that, that's really the DPAA role in the field. And so how long do you think you folks will be there on the ground? You know, we're not sure. You know, as the missing persons list gets refined, because, you know, what happens, I think what you've already seen happen is you, you have a missing persons list put together and they released it to the public last week, and then immediately approximately 100 people were able to call in and say, no, 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 um, this person is safe. And that reduces the list. Um, And then now we're down to a smaller list and a more refined list, and we're gonna start working through that list where we have specific locations that we can go to and and do this uh, very intensive search. Um, and if the list stabilizes, then it becomes easier for us to, uh, to project how long it's going to take. But right now, I would say at least a couple of weeks is what we're looking at. And do you have the latest this morning? What's the number at on that list? You know, we, we did get a list this morning, but I have not reviewed it yet. So, you know, I'm not sure. I don't want to tell you a number, but you can ask Maui PD for the number and they would they would be the people that could give you uh, what the count is currently. And as far as then the comparison with DNA samples that you need, I mean, the county and the FBI were putting the call out saying, hey, you know, if you've got missing relatives, it would assist us if you would provide a DNA sample so we can make the match. Because otherwise, it's very difficult if you don't have dental records. I mean, I understand that your lab had, you know, dental records going back to World War One, I, I think. And so, yeah, uh, yeah. It, but it's a little different with the civilian community, you know, in a town like that. Yes. And so that, you know, I think that Maui PD and the medical examiner would be extremely grateful if any anyone who's related to the missing on, on the list who can provide a DNA reference sample to please contact them to provide that reference sample. It's very easy. It's just a a buckle swab in the cheek. You know, they just rub a little Q-tip like thing inside your cheek. It's completely painless and easy. The reference samples that they collect will not be used for any other purpose except for identification. So people don't need to worry. It's gonna go into some database somewhere. That's not gonna happen. It's only for this specific narrow purpose and cannot be used for anything else. And so there's nothing really to, to fear in providing a sample, and it would be extremely helpful uh, to the medical examiner as they're trying to, to make as many DNA identifications as they can. Um, because currently they have a lot more uh, DNA profiles from remains than they have matches to anyone. So that means they need people to please provide those uh, those reference samples to, so the identifications can proceed. Well, I think that's an important point to underscore about the privacy because that might make uh, some people hesitate. Like, you know, you take my DNA sample and where does it go after that? Yeah, we you know we have the same concerns in our mission, our military mission. Um, we're constantly, you know, putting word out, and you probably have heard us doing that mm-hmm. before, putting the word out to please, if you're related to a missing service member, to please provide a DNA sample. And it's the same situation here with the Maui fire victims, is that it, it's absolutely critical to have those family reference samples uh, provided for this purpose. Um, and people, you know, they don't need to worry that it's going to go into some kind of law enforcement database or something like that, because that's not the intended purpose and they're restricted from doing that. So it's uh, perfectly uh, safe to provide it. It's painless and very easy uh, to provide that sample. 
you know the value of the work that you provide you know when they're when a family has closure when you can identify yeah. someone from you know wars past and we want nothing more than those for those missing Lahaina residents to be found safe but at least if you can find ashes you can find you know uh, remains that you can you can give some of those families closure yeah we, we you know in this mission um, we're going to bring the same level of care and and respect and you know rigor to what we're doing as we do in our normal military mission now our agency director uh, kelly mckeg he's from hawaii grew up in hawaii and he always tell us tells us ikomamai at the end of every staff meeting and uh you know we take that to heart and so long as we're here and so long as maui pd and the medical examiner need us to help we're going we're here to help and is this really the first time that you've had to be a part of this recovery effort, you know, in our own backyard? Or, or I guess maybe you probably, well, I don't know, did you exist during the bombing of Pearl Harbor? Uh, I'm not old enough for that, but I, I, I did respond to 9-11 Pentagon. You know, we were part of a response team that helped out with the, with the identification work after 9-11. So, you know, it was similar in a lot of ways, uh, the kind of work that needed to be done. Uh, there. Yeah. Were you able to get samples from everybody to identify everyone? Yeah, they did very well. The Pentagon and, and New York City mm-hmm. has also done very well over time. But uh, with, with the Pentagon effort, the Department of Defense, uh, nearly everyone was individually identified, both on the plane and inside the, wow. the Pentagon. So it was a very good effort, but it was critical to have collected those anti-mortem records and DNA references from everyone to be able to have that level of success. That was Dr. John Bird of the DPAA, the Defense Prisoner of War Missing in Action Accounting Agency. We talked to him this morning. His team is helping the Maui County Medical Examiner and Police Department with its expertise identifying any remains found in the ashes of Lahaina Town. The military's forensic science experts are offering their help to identify victims of the fire, but key to that effort is to have family of those missing to help provide DNA samples, which authorities say will only be used in this narrow effort to identify loved ones. Bird says the Federal Rapid Response Mortuary Team will be winding up its work to, uh, on site today, and it's unknown at this point how long the DPPA scientists and technicians will be tapped to assist in the emergency recovery effort. Support for HPR comes from the Hawaii Community Foundation, committed to supporting the people and communities affected by the Maui wildfires. Donations accepted at hawaiicommunityfoundation.org slash Maui Strong. London has a problem with foxes. They raid trash cans, they scare residents. I think most people consider them perhaps a nuisance. But for this wildlife photographer, foxes should be celebrated. Oh my goodness, right on cue. Just trotted right across the path there. That looked like a young one. The debate over the rising population of foxes, next time on The World. Beginning this afternoon at 1. Support for HPR comes from Beach Tree Restaurant, located oceanfront at Four Seasons Resort Hualalai, serving lunch and dinner. Chef Giuliano features fresh seafood and daily handcrafted pastas and pizzas with nightly live acoustic entertainment. The fight over water in Maui, even more contentious now, that is the subject of today's reality check. Honolulu Civil Beat reporter Stuart Yurton on the line today. Good morning, Stuart. Good morning, Catherine. Yes, so you've been tracking this water rights issue, uh, and it really has just gotten more um, uh, more messy uh, since the Lahaina Uh, fire. For sure. 
Yes, definitely. I mean, Isaac Morawaki, a lawyer with Earth Justice, uh, said that it's the most contentious that he's seen it in decades of uh, being a lawyer uh, engaged in these issues. So it's really, really gotten uh, very contentious um, in the wake of, of the fire on Maui, the fires on Maui. Right. And it started with the story I know that uh, you uh, wrote about uh, the reassignment of the uh, Water Commission deputy um, in, in a dispute yeah, over exactly. water there. Exactly. Right. I mean, that's one of the examples that we talk about today. I mean, Kaleo Manuel, he was a commission deputy a director of the Commission on Water Resource Management. There was a um, an issue with a water user, one of the one of the companies that that runs uh, uh, one of the private water companies over there, and um, the upshot was he has become this um, very major figure in all of this. He hasn't said a word since uh, the fire, and yet he's become a um, <laughs> really a, a poster child for right-wing pundits and far-right-wing pundits and politicians saying he is an example of what's wrong with progressive politics in the U.S. Um, on the other side, he has tons of people rallying around him saying, no, he's, he's done everything right and should not have been removed from his position. Um, there have been lawsuits. There's been a lawsuit, um, a lot of people speaking out. So that's like one example of this divide. Yeah, and, and uh, the, the concern there was whether uh, water should have been diverted uh, sooner uh, to be available, you know, in case firefighters needed to uh, use that for water drops. Yeah, I mean, there was the, there were really two issues going on there, and that, again, has become part of a very contentious discussion. On one side, you had the water uh, users saying, we want to put it in our private reservoir uh, for uh, water drops from the fire department if needed. Turns out they couldn't use it for water drops because it was too windy to get helicopters in the air. Um, but they were also using it in their own uh, neighborhood, residential neighborhoods, to wet the ground to keep the fire from spreading from there. Uh, we have a picture in today's story of, like, an intersection and how what was going on there, and then a picture of a house that did that and seems to have very possibly protected itself by wetting by creating a fire break using reservoir water. Um, so, again, that's kind of the debate, people saying you can't use it for that. Uh, water fire protection the water company just wants to hog the water as they've done for generations um, you've got the water company saying it's just common sense people should be able to get uh, reser uh, fill reservoirs when fires are going on so again this is the um, very contentious argument there's no um, I mean the divide is is really getting wider rather than narrower right uh, again Again, uh, last week, there was a hearing before the Hawaii Supreme Court. A Department of Land and Natural Resources lawyer was saying, hey, we need to take this matter, but we're asking the court to take the matter out of the, the court of the environmental court for Hawaii, uh, Judge Jeffrey Crabtree, because they said he is blocking um, the use of permitted water to fight fires in central Maui. It was a very dramatic brief. Um, the language was uh, really um, intense, and two of the justices, um, Todd Eddins and Sabrina McKenna, called him out for this. Called the, I'm sorry, the woman, uh, the, the deputy attorney general, out for this, and said, "You can't say that. There's nothing in your brief supporting what you're saying. Nothing in the court record supporting this. Walk back your state, your statement." The the lawyer refused, and. This was the, um, yeah, this was the this was the deal. So it was an incredible um, exchange in the Supreme Court. Yeah, highly unusual, uh, but it just goes to show just the, you know, the, the deep divide and and the concerns over you know, uh, water in Maui and and what it should be used for, you know, because we saw when, when the sugarcane sugar plantations folded. You know, there was a concern back then about, you know, fire, the fire hazard. So it, it still exists today. Yeah, for sure. Well, again, this is this is not going to be easy to solve. It, it's only gotten worse. So we'll have to see if people can work out the solution.
Yeah, but really interesting reading. Uh, thank you so much, Stuart. Thank you, Catherine. Okay. That was reporter Stuart Yurton with today's Reality Check. Uh, you can read that story on this issue. Visit civilbeat.org. This is The Conversation on statewide member-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Now it's time for your Backyard Quiz. Onihoa, olehua, onihau, okaua, ooahu, omolokai, olanai, omau, okaholabe, ohavai. Let's take a cruise on a Maui highway, the Hana Belt Road, properly known as the Road to Hana. It's 68 miles long and connects the once isolated communities of East Maui with the rest of the island. Before 1925, being able to drive from Kahului to Hana was just a dream. If you wanted to get there, you took a boat or you went by horse or mule on a very, very long and very rough road. But by June of 1925, after about 11 miles of the road to Hana had been completed, Governor Wallace Farrington declared the road officially open. He led a grand procession of cars as far as it went, but it still wasn't open to the public until 1926. In fact, the road wasn't even completed until 1940 after President, Rose, President Roosevelt created the Hana Coast Civilian Conservation Corps as part of his Great Depression Jobs Program. Today, it's a popular route for tourists and the only road in and out for locals. For today's Backyard Quiz, can you tell us who were the first workers to begin construction on this road? Call 808-941-3689 or 877-941-3689 if you know the answer. The first one to get right wins a reusable HPR tote bag. Support for the Backyard Quiz comes from Nairit Hawaii, which supports nonprofits providing housing for the homeless, including U.S. Vets, with its Kamaoku Kauhale Tiny Homes community. NairitHawaii.com. Water has powered Kauai in the past. Will it power its future? The Kauai Island Utility Cooperative is pursuing a multi-year lease for a new hydropower plant on the Waimea River, which would divert a rolling average of 11 million gallons of water a day. But community members pushed back, saying DLNR should require KIUC to complete a full environmental impact statement to investigate the project. The hydrologist Matt Rosner hopes KIUC completes an environmental impact statement. A lot of times we've used the terms renewable and green energy interchangeably. That's not always true. There are some hydropower projects out there that actually have pretty significant environmental impacts. The plantations diverted millions of gallons of water out of natural stream beds for irrigation and power, which continued long after the sugar era ended. They took away the water without anybody having any say about it. It really alienated a lot of Hawaiians from their land, all the plantations. Support energy and climate change coverage on HPR. Donate at hawaiipublicradio.org. Reporter Catherine Cluett-Pactall covers Maui Nui for Hawaii Public Radio. She was recently on the Valley Isle covering the aftermath of the fires. Today she joins us to talk about a nonprofit that's helping displaced residents rebound from this tragedy. Good morning, Catherine. Good morning. So Eddie Garcia is executive director of Regenerative Education Centers on He's a farmer. Uh, he's lived off-grid for years, and he has two farms near Lahaina. One was burned and is still off-limits, um, 
in Laniopoco, and he's hoping to get access to that again so he can start growing food. But the other is in Oluwalu, that's where he set up um, his nonprofit's resource center. And immediately after the fire, he set it up with food, offering food for families that were displaced from the fire, Starlink Internet, renewable energy for families to use. And now his nonprofit is shifting focus um, toward recovery and long-term options. So he's partnering with organizations like Nonprofit um, Global Empowerment Mission, or GEM. Um, Pesha Hawaii is helping him with shipping and lots of other um, organizations, businesses, nonprofits that he's partnered with. And Garcia wants to help displaced families be self-sufficient. So for the long term, what I can give the best to most folks in my area is set them up with RVs and tiny homes that are completely self-sufficient with solar systems on them, pumpable bathrooms, and that allows them actually to get back to their property and be able to rebuild on it once the process is opened up for it to be safe. Trying to work with other folks for land for people to lease for maybe yearly leaseholds until they're able to rebuild on their land. And then they can come up and park this tiny home along with a container and, and then they can be completely self-sufficient. They don't have to tax the municipal systems with a sewer or electricity or even internet. All of that's in place. And so we're donating those 100% for free for people. There's no strings attached to it. I thought that was a good way to be able to give back to my community and help keep the people of Lahaina in Lahaina. Because what I know Lahaina is the people that have been here for generations. Everything we know is around that. And so if people don't have an easy way to come back to their land, to be close to it, to start to rebuild and reclaim, it will be easier for them to leave elsewhere. Gosh, and you know, it's so heartwarming to hear, you know, so many people uh, sharing the stories about how they're helping each other. It is. That's one of, um, you know, the lights out of all of this tragedy is, is seeing the community come together in efforts like this. There's so many examples of them, um, but for him to use his nonprofit to um, help his fellow Lahaina residents is is really nice. So his goal, as he mentioned, is to get people back on their own land in Lahaina, as so many people have expressed the desire to do that, and create ways to make it easier for them to stay in the area, um, those folks who were displaced to be able to stay near to their own properties rather than moving away as, as some folks, um, you know, of course, is, is tempting to start fresh. Um, not all of the RVs and tiny homes will be on his Oluwalu property. He's working, as he mentioned, to get um, leases for those folks on other properties, um, you know, maybe six months to one year. All the units are mobile. So once Lahaina residents can get back on their own land, um, they're able to move the tiny homes or the RVs to their own property while they rebuild or they, you know, choose whatever they choose to do with, with their property. And all of his units are, he's making sure that they're, you know, legal to be on the, on the road and, and travel from point A to point B and all of those things. And he originally said he had a goal of creating 20 tiny homes for Lionel residents. And then the goal was up to 200, but he said they already have the materials and the resources for nearly 150 of those. So he just told me they've actually increased the goal to 2,000. So that's a pretty lofty goal. Um, he said they're looking at doing it in different stages. And of course, as funding becomes available along the way. Um, but here's Garcia talking about how the recipients of those tiny homes and RVs will be selected. So we're building a list right now, and that list is also being facilitated by other entities as well as ourselves. We have a scan code. People can go straight to the website and they can get on the scan code and fill out an application. And then what we are doing is we are vetting the applications based on need. Are there children? Are there kapuna? Are the families that have been here for generations? That's what's really important and at the forefront to us. We have houses that are on the ground already, and that's going to be determinant upon the list, how, how we vet the list. So we expect to have some folks in houses within the next couple of weeks that already have a place to put it up to. Um, as soon as some of the RVs come in, they're ready to hit the road. 
and we already have other facets of it. We have tubes on the ground. We probably have enough structures to house 10 or 11 people ready to go within the next couple of weeks. That really is just incredible, you know, so fast. They're, they're, they're getting these things up and getting people in shelter. Yes, and as a farmer, of course, one of his focuses is on food. His Laniapoko farm is 20 acres, and he says he anticipates being able to grow 300,000 to 400,000 pounds of food there in the next six months, which, you know, seems unbelievable, but that would be great. And um, once they're cleared to return to that property that was damaged in the fire. Um, But in the meantime, they're supplementing the food that they grow with a food truck program. We are also doing a food program here. We've purchased some food trucks. We're putting uh, $10,000 a week into food as well as what we grow on our regenerative farms. We're making all of that food available along with what we purchase. People that are victims of the fire will be able to come and eat at this food truck for free all year. We have the budget in place for the first six months. I think we're doing it quarterly. Yeah, that's a big thing that we're working on. We're going to be feeding people, housing people, and then people will also be able to come here on site, look at the house that's being built for them, help have some input while they have a place to use the internet and perhaps even spend some time on the regenerative farms and have a little bit of peace of mind. Perhaps, you know, we can keep as many people as we can here in Lahaina that are Lahaina and stop all the vultures from coming in that are trying to take advantage of the opportunity of this catastrophe. Yeah, very protective of the Lahaina Ohana. Absolutely. So he's doing what he can to help folks stay right there at home. All right. Well, thank you so much, uh, Catherine. Uh, Yeah, it's just really uh, nice to hear what uh, some of the residents there are doing to help each other out. Thank you. That was HPR's Catherine Kluwit-Pactel talking with us, uh, uh, talking to us about a nonprofit that is helping Maui families recover from the devastating wildfires. Support for HPR comes from Osher Lifelong Learning Institute for ages 50 and older, with courses designed to engage the mind and enrich lives. Classes begin September 18th. More by searching O-L-L-I-U-H-M. Yes, it's scary. It can cause destruction and loss of life, and there's reasons to be scared of it, but fire is not bad or good. It just is. But people make choices about where to live and how to rebuild after a fire. More than ever, communities are asking how to rebuild with resilience after your world has burned down. That's on the next On Point. Beginning this afternoon at 2. Support for The Conversation comes from Skog Rasmussen, LLC, designing solutions for community engagement, project strategy, government relations, and grants services. Learn more at skograsmussen.com. This is The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. And this week on the Mono Minute, we've got another bird name for its brilliant color, the saffron finch. But its song is just as lovely as its plumage. Special thanks to the Macaulay Library at the Cornell Laboratory of Ornithology for sharing their calls. Here's University of Hawaii at Hilo Professor Patrick Hart with your Mono Minute. The saffron finch is a golden yellow songbird that can be commonly seen in small flocks on lawns and other grassy and shrubby areas on Hawaii Island and Oahu. Native to South America, they were introduced to Hawaii in the early 1960s, mainly because of their colorful plumage and their pleasant whistle-like songs. Both sexes are bright yellow, but males have a much more orangey head and face, while juveniles are much lighter yellow. They mostly forage on the ground for seeds and insects, and are also happy to visit backyard bird feeders. 
These birds were introduced at a time when many of our native birds had disappeared from the lowlands due to mosquito-transmitted disease like avian malaria. If and when we ever succeed at landscape-scale control of these non-native mosquitoes, it's possible that many of our native birds, like the bright red apapane and the yellow amakihi, can recolonize our parks and backyards. It remains to be seen how they might interact with some of the newly established species like the saffron finch. For Hawaii Public Radio, I'm Patrick Hart from the Biology Department at UH Hilo. Support for Manu Minute comes from Ken and Patty Kupchak for the Friends of Hakalau Forest National Wildlife Refuge, devoted to conserving the unique flora and fauna of Hawaii Island. More about giving at friendsofhakalauforest.org. And now it's time to pave a path to the answer to today's backyard quiz. Earlier we asked you what you knew about the building of the road to Hana. Many worked on the road between 1923 and 1940, but who were the workers who started the project? Well, between 1923 and 25, the first 11 miles were hacked, hoed, blasted, and uh, scraped out of Haleakala's coastal cliffs and jungles by construction crews made up of convicts from the Kanai prison camp which is the answer to today's backyard quiz. Prison labor is a historic truth here in Hawaii, a society that currently has one of the world's highest incarceration rates. In 1926, the K&I prison camp was built to house the road gang inmates. In 1934, it was converted into quarters for the Civilian Conservation Corps created by President Franklin Delano, um, Delano Roosevelt. The Corps finished the job in six years. Since 1940, we've had the freedom to drive the winding road to Hana, made possible by the labor of those who rightfully, or maybe even wrongfully, lost their freedom. Uh, that is today's quiz, and our winner today, Brendan Holland from Kailua. Uh, you, you, got, you got it right. If you have an idea for a quiz, send it to talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Ferraro Choi, committed to environmentally sustainable architecture and interior design. Supporting Hawaii Public Radio for more than 25 years, ferrarochoi.com. I'm Bert Lum. Today on Bite Marks FA, we find out how you can improve the internet by going to speedtest.net. We'll hear from the team at UCLA how the speed test has become an important, widely used application. That's today at 6.30 p.m. on Bite Marks Cafe. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Mobi, a Hawaii wireless company since 2005, featuring a locally-based customer care team committed to problem-solving and personal service for each client. Learn more at Mobi.com. George Kahomoku Jr. is a Grammy Award-winning master slack key guitarist who is also known for his Native Hawaiian cultural immersion workshops. He hosts the longest-running concert series featuring Hawaiian musicians and is known in Maui as Uncle George. The conversation Stephanie Hahn checked in to hear this community leader's perspective on recovery and relief. Kahumoku was gathering with his students, his haumana, to learn about food security and music. Those included uh, Isabel Vork, Jack Flum, Haley Gilmore, and Michelle Ramos. Here's Kahumoku. First of all, I think that each of us needs to just kind of like, the priority needs to be uh, everybody get some kind of clarity. And this is like a reset button for all of us. COVID was the first reset button. And we just need to get clarity and focus on just one thing that each of us can do per day. <laughs> Even me, you know, because we're all scattered brain now. Our faces have got so much feelings and emotions going on. And try to do something positive by serving others. 
I think that's how we can uh, do. Instead of just thinking of yourself and the families you lost and all like that, just think of something that you can do to, to help out others, starting with yourself and get some clarity. So if you can just do one thing at a time, that's what I would say. Because I think we should get off social media. We should get off of our, the phones. <laughs> you know, I hate to say it like that. And we should just get one-to-one with each other, with families and with your, your loved ones and everybody. And connect with someone for real, not through, not through uh, technology. Because I think it's, that's, it's important that we, we have that human contact with each other at this time now, especially when now there's something so horrific that, that's happened to all of us. That's the first step. And the other thing I think that you should do is start sharing uh, things that, you know, you, you can share. You can share a meal with your friends and your neighbors, you know. You can share uh, songs like that's what we're doing over here. We're sharing the music. But share uh, the gifts that uh, kind of like God gave each of us. Because each of us has special gifts that only we have and nobody else has. So I think through service, we can get out of ourselves and help people, you know, that are not as fortunate as we are. And always, always count your blessings. Everything that we have is a blessing. And even the, the water we have that we can drink or the food we have is like medicine, you know, for us. And look at things from that point of view as, as uh, anything that we, we um, eat or drink or anything is a blessing and it's a, somebody had to sacrifice to put that on on a you know in our table or for us some farmer or somebody had to pick that that fruit that you're eating and uh, just be thankful that's all that's all i got to say just be thankful and count your blessings at this time but get off of all, all the social media get off of tv you know and and get off of radio and all like that and just make a, a connection with someone uh, one-to-one. I think that's make, make a, a big difference in the world. What happened with, uh, with Lahaina is that they ha- actually had no connections for a while, you know, for almost a whole week because the electricity went out, knocked out all of the power, you know, no cell phone and, and everything like that. And everybody was kind of crazy, you know, but I think there was like, you know, like a wake-up call for all of us just to put down our devices and just look, look for comfort you know, from each other, you know, from, from the little circles of friends or uh, from your neighbor, you know, learn who your neighbor is and see how you can help out each other. That's all I got to say for right now. Mm-hmm. And I, you guys got anything you want to add, Michelle? What do you think? I think that those little things, they add to the healing. So right now you don't really feel a difference. Like when you speak to your neighbor, you make a meal, share a meal, you don't feel it. But in a couple of days or a week, you're like, oh my God, I'm feeling so much better. And those are the little things that count because that's the healing. That's what's going to help us heal and get through this. Okay, how about you, Haley? You got anything? I love what you said about taking care of yourself first. Right, right. Because you have to be well in order to give back. you got to love yourself before you can give your love to others. How about you, Jack? You got anything? Yeah, I think it is important to mourn, you know. you can, you got to look out for yourself in that way, and you have to take time to... Um, to look back on those memories and cherish them, and, and but don't let it affect um, how you treat other people and your place in the community. Okay, and Isabel, you got any two cents? The community is so strong out here, and I feel like everyone who you know puts forth their energy and their love towards other people, I think that that is important to make those connections with people and you know spend that time with family and friends, and you know we're all in this together, you know, the only place we can go from now is up and... Yeah, you move, move forward. So that's that's our word for today. Those who are listening is that you more we're going to rise all above this and and uh, it's going to take us a little bit of time and everything, but, you know, with a collective force of mindset and, uh, and goodness in our hearts and everything and being grateful for the things that we do have, I think we can move forward. So that's our two cents from Kakalo Maui. This is potentially a huge reset for Maui, and not only Maui, but a direction that the entire state could take. Um, What do you think must be prioritized to rebuild? These questions were happening way before uh, the forest came and. problems with housing, you know, we have a farm 
I've been farming for over 50 years on these these islands, and one of the problems has always been housing. So now we have a real problem in Lahaina with housing, but I think housing, even when I farmed on the big island, you know, housing was a problem for the workers who work for you, and, uh, you know, people couldn't afford. So we're going to have to look at alternative ways of coming up so people can afford to. And the, the housing comes food. I think right now, the island of Maui, and I've always been on this this level, even when I thought I uh, was in school and everything. This is like your basic needs is like housing, food, and uh, some some kind of services that you can do. You can call it a job or, or something like that. Food security has always been my, uh, you know, on my radar since I was a little boy, raised from my great grandparents in South Kona, you know. I, I don't know if you're going to lax the laws or, or make something that's even better. Like, I built over 105 houses, maybe 20 houses in my lifetime, and only one of them, I think, the one that I live in now has a permit. <laughs> the rest of the houses, you know, I just built them in a forest, and people are living on them. They've been living on them for 30, 40, 50 years. We built the houses so it has some, uh, so they're going to last. So you don't need the all these building codes and all this other stuff. It's like red tape you got to go through to build houses. It's like a nonsense to me. Looking at it from a you know a standpoint point of, of, of survival level, and the other one is food security. Everybody should be instead of us um, you know bringing in our fruits and vegetables from from afar. We should be every household. Everybody should be learning how to plant. Even if you grow green onions just for your salmon or something like that, you know, you can have pots in your in your balcony or whatever, even in condos and stuff like that. But everybody should be have a hand and even if you don't have a, a place they can garden you know you should have community gardens where people can go and uh you know share food and share uh wisdom and stuff like that too so that's going to be uh important for the future of the islands but housing was has always been a problem ever since you know i grew up but you, you know you don't have to get a million dollar house you know i built houses for under five thousand dollars there was 2400 square feet you, refurbishing, you know, used materials. There's so many uh, buildings uh, that they take down, you know, the, the lumber is still good, you can still use them. The only thing that I always put brand new is the roof, but inside you can get cabinets, you can get windows. You're throwing them away at the rubbish dump, that's another thing. I, don't, I think we shouldn't throw away anything that comes into the state of Hawaii. You should be saving all the glass, all the cars, and breaking them down into the, you know, the precious metals that they are. Plastics, glass, and then you can get aluminum, copper, you know, lead, all of this stuff. And it, it takes a lot of energy to make those things, like in automobiles and stuff like that. And you can take them and refurbish them and repurpose all those things. So they become like a commodity instead of uh, just stuff we take to the rubbish dump or, or we ship off island. So I got other ideas about that. In a way, I enjoy this. That's one of my favorite things called dumpster diving. <laughs> you know, your favorite, but um, not everybody's, you know, into that. But you know, there's so much waste, it's unbelievable. Even the restaurants is this is waste, you know, and even in households and stuff like that. So anyway, that's my two cents. This is like a reset button for all of us to kind of look at our resources and use the ones that we have so we can better our lives here. And that's and not throw away anything. You might end up being hoarders and stuff like that, but better a junkyard here on land, we can you know, actually resource the materials than throwing it in the ocean or throwing it in somebody else's backyard. And all those resources are still good. You know, We can re- refurbish them again. That's what I think. We just gotta figure out the way to do it. I was young, you know, we used to go to the, when you go to dump something at the rubbish dump, man, you're coming home with maybe two truckloads of stuff you're gonna dump off, but you're going home with about four truckloads that you're picking up from all this stuff other people threw away. It includes plants and all kinds of stuff like that, yeah. There's a song that we, uh, we want to share here written by Lyman Alliance. <laughs>
And that was Maui musician and teacher George Kahumoku Jr. with his students talking to HPR Stephanie Hahn. He shared his thoughts about how housing and food security are foundations to recovery there on Maui. up tomorrow, uh, we plan to explore the trauma experienced by Maui's first responders, our firefighters who lost their homes trying to save others. What would you like to share about our losses in Lahaina? Call our talkback line, 808-792-8217, or email talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. Find our archive shows online on our website or by searching for The Conversation Podcast on places like Spotify and Apple. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of The Conversation.